0: Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. Yeah, it's getting warmer outside slowly, but it's it's happening, and that means they're out. They're out. They're not waiting to come out. They're out. They're out of the closet. I'm talking about mosquitoes, ticks, fleas. Prevention is the key word, but what do you choose, and then how, how do you go about doing it? And does it always work? Becky Mosser is an expert on this topic, a registered veterinary technician, and she will explain all of it. Veterinary behaviorist Dr. Chris Pockel is here, the perfect person for me to ask some of these questions. You know, our dogs, our cats are living longer than ever before. Hooray! That's a great thing. But with older age come old age issues, and one of them is what's called canine cognitive dysfunction syndrome, or in cats, feline cognitive dysfunction syndrome, kind of like Alzheimer's, correct?
1: Sort of, yeah. There's definitely some correlations there in terms of what we see in that elderly population. And I think one of the places that that is really similar is that we may see age-related cognition changes in people, for example, that are not always... Dementia or Alzheimer's, and we may see some age-related cognition changes in dogs that may or may not be true cognitive dysfunction as well. It exists sort of along a continuum. uh,
0: On a daily basis, forgetting where I put my keys. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I need. So, we're going to be talking about enrichment for older dogs. Maybe that is one thing I should train our dog to do and that is to find my keys. Dogs could do that, right?
1: Absolutely. Yes. It's, it it's fun work. to be fun to be able to think about that as a way of really activating that brain and whether it's finding the keys or as you said nose work, something that teaches their brain and provides new challenges for them and allows them to navigate new spaces and yeah, solve new challenges. It's a great place to start.
0: So I've seen the pictures. So uh, Talks like the kind you give at veterinary meetings of the amyloid plaque, as I believe it's called, inside human brains. That's slide number one. Slide number two, amyloid plaque in a dog brain. It looks, to my eyes anyway, identical. So what's causing the problem, if not identical, is quite similar, isn't it?
1: It is. It's a similar pathophysiological process, right? The things that are going on inside the brain as part of that degenerative process, they're very, very similar. One of the tricky bits about that particular condition, at least in dogs, where my expertise lies, is that we can't diagnose it while the pet is still alive. So when we look at some of those slides and looking at those histopathology slides, unfortunately, that's information that we gain after the animal has already passed. And we don't have definitive tests while the pet is still alive to truly say, here is the diagnosis.
0: Yeah, it would be cool if there were some simple blood test or you could take a picture of the dog and say, oh, I could tell by the picture somehow that this is going on. You can't do that. we We
1: We can do some things to rule. It out, you know, we can look for things like brain tumors mm-hmm. and other lesions, and that's a really important part of the process. But once we've ruled those out, yeah, it's not going to give us that picture of and here is what it is.
0: So, what are you looking for in dogs and in cats? What are you looking for?
1: So, it varies actually a little bit based on whether we're talking dogs or cats. In dogs, we typically think of the acronym DISHA, which stands for D I S H A. Mm-hmm disorientation is the D, changes in social interaction is the I, S is for sleep-wake cycle, H stands for house training or house soiling or broader category, loss of any other learned behaviors, and then the A is changes in activity or anxiety. And we can see any or all of those changes on the canine side.
0: And by disorientation, you mean something like a, a dog walking into a wall on the other side of the open door rather than going through the open door. By changes in interactions, you mean people the dog once loved and still loves, but somehow isn't expressing that love anymore. As one example, but sleep-wake cycle, dogs sleep a lot if they're older dogs anyway, but you're talking about changes in the cycle, dogs staying awake maybe at three to five to six in the morning and sleeping maybe more during the day. Where am I? D I S A, where I've lost track here.
1: H. H is next on the house <laughs> the training. House training. Yes.
0: So, dogs that you know have been house trained their whole life, having accidents for no other medical reason. Right. And anxiety, I think, is an interesting part of all this because, unlike a person who typically, when they're first diagnosed, sitting down with the neurologist and family members, and you know, it's a Terrible conversation to have This is what's happening And I've been in the room With that conversation But the human being still at that point Can understand, may not believe it But can understand What they're being told How do you tell a dog? So there's no explanation for the dog As to why these changes are occurring In of itself I suggest potentially That can cause anxiety Combined with the fact That you've got other medical things going on Because we're talking about older dogs. So we're talking about dogs that can't hear as well, potentially. Dogs that can't see as well. Dogs that may have mouths that hurt, you know, because their teeth need some attention that they're not getting. On and on and on.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one of the things that's important when we go back to the the D-I-S-H-A acronym... We often talk about changes, right? It's just something that is different for your pet. It doesn't always mean more or less. It just means a substantial difference from their baseline, which is one of the reasons why you know and I both tell our our audiences and our, our pet parents, if you see something, say something, right? Bring it up, ask the question, figure out, is it normal? Is it abnormal? Should we be screening for additional medical issues? What do we do from here? What about cats? Yeah, cats, well... Cats always have their own little rule book, right? <laughs> I, I, I love them for it. I, I love, love, love them for it. So cats are a little bit different. We don't necessarily re- rely on that same DISHA acronym. There are some overlaps, um, but you know the changes in mobility, so pacing, uh, excessive vocalization, as well as some of the disruption in sleep-wake cycle are some of the common signs that we see for them. I don't see that we notice the disorientation piece nearly as much, which may just come back to many of us aren't exactly training our cats the same way we are in our dogs. So we may not notice those changes, but the similarities are yeah, definitely Yeah, I,
0: I would suggest that cats do express disorientation, but it's what you just said. Because cats are more subtle in the way, you know, so, but many cats, people come home, the cats are right there at the door yeah. greeting people. Now they're not doing that. That could be a sign of a hundred things, but it could be a sign of that too. If we're talking about an older cat.
1: Yeah. I think what you hit on there too, is it's the absence of normal behavior, which is actually even a harder one for a lot of pet parents to recognize. It's not as though they're excessively vocal or peeing on the sofa, right? It's, they're just not doing the things they used to do, and that requires a it's kind of a, set, a special set of skills to really notice that and bring it up. So, and with it's
0: cats, good, it's especially hard because they're so subtle.
1: Well, and and so oftentimes with cats, when they're stressed, they go more towards seclusion, right? Yeah. So they're less visible, they're less expressive. It's still there, but it just shows up a bit differently.
0: Yeah, exactly right. So the big question is: now you've got a pet. You've gone to your veterinarian, or at least I hope you have, and I want to stress something you said, because it's so incredibly important. Early diagnosis of this makes all the difference in the world. So a pet parent that goes with their dog or cat once a year to the vet, and that dog is 13, the cat is 17, I argue that's not enough.
1: Yeah, I would agree. We're definitely monitoring more frequently, whether that's with blood work and other diagnostic testings, or even doing some of the validated screening tests that are available to to really just get some numerical scoring for what are the behaviors that your animal is showing. And let's compare those every six months. Let's see what's shifting and what's not.
0: But the magical question is, well, what do you do about it once it's diagnosed? We're going to come back and answer that question with Dr. Chris Pockel here on WGN. We are talking about the animals that Betty White loved so much. She once said that I love the older animals because they remind me of me. Because it seemed Betty White was old forever, right? And she loved her animals. Uh, and we're talking about what is called canine or feline, cognitive dysfunction syndrome. We were talking more about cats before the commercial break. I don't think people often enough, talk about cats who are now living into their 20s. And cats typically in their 20s, you see kidney disease, you might see cancers, but at some point you might see this. And I think we're seeing more and more of it with cats and dogs, but cats as well.
1: Yeah, we don't have a lot of great studies to establish uh, the prevalence or just how common it is. And I I think it's tricky in cats as well, right? So, so many of their issues tend to be a little bit more invisible, harder to detect, harder to differentiate. Is this pain? Is it something else? Or is it true, more dementia type signs? So, it's difficult to say with, with certainty, but gosh, you know, I certainly have them coming through my practice as well, where we have a client who says, hey, what's going on? This is different. This is unusual. How do we tease this out? So, we're definitely sorting it out.
0: And if you think about it, Think of people you know and we all know or have known people uh, with Alzheimer's or dementia of some sort. They all have or just about all have other medical conditions going on, comorbidities of some sort in our dogs and cats does is that true and does that play into it?
1: It absolutely does if if, if only to make it more confusing as to how to, to tease out which is which, but absolutely the the likelihood of having an elderly pet, Canine or feline with truly only one condition—it's—I don't know—I don't know if rare is the right word, but it's pretty darn uncommon, at least in my experience. Even yeah. if we're just just uh, talking about some of those age-related aches and pains, or maybe we're starting to see some low elevations in liver enzymes, or you know, again, just something that's not a hundred percent the way it was. All of that starts to add up.
0: And what we now know through recent studies that I'm sure you're aware of is that uh, arthritis, osteoarthritis in cats, is way more prevalent than we ever thought.
1: Very much so, yeah. And then the, what we're also learning in addition to that is the, the expression of pain, Right, So what does that look like? Not only is it there, but what does that look like? Can we detect it? What are the scales to do so? And and then how does pain show up? Whether that's with anxiety, whether it's changes in activity, whether it's aggressive behaviors, whether it's intolerance for household stressors, all of those things potentially are affected by physical discomfort. So I
0: wonder at times, uh, because pet parents are smarter than, than they ever have been uh, by listening to this radio show, but I hope in other ways as well, uh, and care. Uh, pet parents have always cared, but yes. the bond is, I, I would argue, more profound with every passing day. And people want to do, very much, want to do the right thing for their pets. I wonder if, on occasion, people go to Dr. Google or just, I've heard of this, and therefore it must be true, and then tell their veterinarian, okay, my cat... Has been screaming at 3 or 4 in the morning And the cat happens to be 18 So the veterinarian then asks A couple of other questions And even a veterinary professional says Okay, I wonder and think it may be Feline cognitive dysfunction syndrome No offense to the veterinarian Whoever that may be But I wonder if it's arthritis pain That we now know is so prevalent That is causing this Or if not that Something else could be a brain tumor causing an irregularity. It could be kidney disease, even hyperthyroid disease, and on, on, on.
1: Yeah, there's all of those things that we are looking for, and I'm grateful that, you know at least with the, the teaching that I do at the veterinary schools around the U.S., you know, we, we do see a pretty significant emphasis on that systems-based approach. Uh, so I would say that in my experience, it almost goes in the opposite direction, that rather than saying, gosh, you've got a new behavior change, I wonder if it's cognitive dysfunction, sometimes I think we get to all the medical stuff and then we say, oh, gosh, this must be just quote-unquote behavioral and we lose sight that this may actually be a degenerative change that we could actually do something about. Yeah. So, I mean, all of those variations are out there within the marketplace, within within the profession. And so we just have to be on our toes and never lose sight of the forest for the trees or the trees for the forest or Whatever however that, that, that goes. the leaves are falling or Ex- something
0: like that. Or exactly. So, all right, the, the dog or cat has now been diagnosed with co- cognitive dysfunction syndrome. What do you do about
1: it? So there's a couple of different things. I mean, number one, I find that, especially my older population, I actually start with nutrition. Um, there's a lot of great information out there on the human side as well as in our companion animals that, that really support whether that's fatty acid supplementation. And Again, thinking when I'm talking about nutrition, it's not just what bag of food do you pick up or what do you eat But feed. it's
0: that too, right? There are prescription yes. diets that uh, are for geriatric animals.
1: Absolutely, yeah. There's a number of them on the market, uh, both the, the sort of the neuro care sort of an approach looking at medium chain triglycerides or looking at some of the other fatty acid supplementation there that really has a direct and indirect effect on cognitive performance. I also include in there, so we start to kind of shift from nutrition over to supplements. We might be talking about probiotics Mm -hmm. and really trying to affect that gut brain access. We may be talking about other more specific anti-anxiety type supplements or other ingredients that may have an effect there. And all of that goes along with environmental modifications and training or behavior modification to try to challenge that brain in appropriate ways, kind of in a use it or lose it mindset mm-hmm. to, to, to help them kind of keep that brain online as much as possible.
0: So in human medicine, a doctor might say, well, take a language class, learn Spanish. Do you ever suggest that? For dogs? We do.
1: Uh, really? You have yeah,
0: dogs that bark in Spanish. Absolutely. I like
1: it's amazing. There's a cute little dialect <laughs> that just finishes off the end with the... uh <laughs> Yes. No, we, we definitely try to challenge the brain in ways that are new for them. Teaching new things. Exactly. And, and even if it's something where we may be looking at movement patterns, we may do some really rudimentary agility, probably not sending them through fast weave poles or over teeters, but just enough to challenge them to move their body, challenging that proprioception, teaching them how to do scent discrimination tasks... All of those sorts of things, even as simple as using puddle, puzzle feeders yeah. for meal times For
0: dogs and cats?
1: Dogs and cats, absolutely. Challenge that brain. Get them working at comfortable levels. Again, if your dog or cat has never really played with these toys, start easy. Mm-hmm. You can always ramp up, but we don't want to create frustration, especially if that brain's a little bit offline as we're getting started.
0: Right. Uh, so we talked about... Enrichment in general, but very specifically, dogs live by their nose. So do cats, really. So putting something interesting in the environment that isn't offensive to cats, because that can be a challenge. But just putting a rag that you've
1: doused some lavender on, for example, uh, for dogs too, good idea. Generally speaking, and and you know, I think it's a great way to create that sort of different, novel kind of challenge but, and, I'm going to ask the animal, right, so if we have an animal who experiences that novelty, whether it's a smell or whether it's an mm-hmm. object, and it seems like it's eliciting more of a fear or a panic response, probably want to dial it back and start a little bit easier so that we're not, you know, creating additional issues and trying to address the first ones.
0: Well, I love the fact that we took a deep dive in this topic with the guy who knows about it, Dr. Chris Pockel, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Next week ought to be interesting. I will speak with Rob Gronkowski. name sound familiar? I'm talking about the former National Football League player who happens to be a huge dog lover. We'll be talking about his dog. We'll be talking about something called Valley Fever, which occurs in Arizona. He went to the University of Arizona where he played football, so he knows about Valley Fever and its dangers. And an exciting announcement having to do with a vaccine that is in, well... Uh, It it should be released sometime later this year, at least that's the hope. Also, cutting-edge medicine involving dental care, not for you, for your pets. Hey, everybody, you've heard me talk about Fear Free before. Fear Free is an initiative which began to minimize fear, anxiety, and stress of veterinary visits. And it's gone on to kind of change the world. I mean, dog trainers have said We want to be like veterinarians are certified and technicians and nurses are certified. We want to be certified, too. Uh, People who groom dogs can be certified as well. Animal shelters can be certified. I mean, this thing is going on and on and on. It's a great idea because so many animals so fearful of the veterinary visit. But fear-free really begins in our homes. And here's an example. So you have a cat whose personality seems somehow... Different? Just a little bit. Just a little bit. And the cat seems to be less interactive with family members. Or maybe the cat is hiding more often. Why do you think that might be? Well, it probably is this. Or at least it might be this. The cat might be hurting actually. So we now know how often it is that, you know, the old thinking was cats are small, they don't have arthritis. But that's not true at all, it turns out. And especially with senior cats, but not necessarily. Not necessarily. So that cat is now in pain. So no wonder. So, you know, cats don't tell us that they hurt. But in the instance I described, The cat is very much telling us, but are we understanding what the cat is saying? Just by being a bit more aloof, a bit less interactive. And the great news is today, your veterinarian can do something about it more so than just actually six months ago. It's pretty incredible. There's a a medication specifically approved for cats with arthritis that's all new And seems to be working incredibly well. My point, though, isn't so much about Silencia. That's the name of the medication. My point is more to the fact that cats actually are communicating with us all the time. We just always don't pick up on it. Becky Mosser is one of my favorite guests to have on the radio. And a great teacher, by the way, but unfortunately, you cannot hear her teach at a veterinary conference unless you're a veterinary professional, but you can hear her right now. We're going to talk about, I think it's one of your favorite topics. A lot of people don't have this as a favorite topic. You at dinner like to <laughs> it talk about It makes
2: me th- interesting, dinner company, that's for Tick sure. <laughs> tic disease, yes, it's what it's all about. I love to talk about the bugs. It makes my husband nervous when we, when we meet new people, but there's so much interesting, fascinating things about bugs.
0: What fascinates you about ticks?
2: You know, I think the most fascinating thing about ticks and, and most parasites in general is that they evolved to survive. They have evolved so quickly and so amazingly over the years in a way that they're they're going to persevere way past us.
0: Yeah. Uh and they love our dogs. They too. do. Well who yeah. can blame them? <laughs> I suppose that's true. But they like taking a bite out of our dogs, but they leave a gift or two behind. And, you know, sometimes we think of Lyme disease, and that probably is the most common tick disease in dogs. But oftentimes it's not only Lyme, it's a cocktail, and people aren't aware that that tick is left behind a cocktail of pathogens that causes Lyme, but maybe some other things as well.
2: I love that you're calling it a cocktail. Um, It is so true, and I love that you mentioned that one tick can carry multiple diseases it's very personal to me Steve I think you know but not a lot of people know that my ex-husband passed away at 44 years old from rocky mounted spotted fever yeah. because he contracted that from a tick bite so our pets can get rocky mounted spotted fever we can get rocky mounted spotted fever ehrlichia for our cats you know it's incredibly scary because the only real tick borne disease that affects them is cytokinosis and cytokinosis is incredibly deadly in fact when I learned about it in school they told us the first sign of cytosinosis is death and so ticks are actually a myriad of nasty terrible even deadly diseases when i talk about ticks i talk about it all the time they are lifelong preventable diseases
0: and ticks are not hard to find now and they find your pets yeah. you know uh, 45 years ago lyme disease was uncommon in america today it's very common in america as one example
2: Lyme disease, you know, it's interesting because I think more testing is more positive cases, and so we're just getting more data around it. But when we think about things like Lyme disease, I think it's the one we hear about the most because people are so highly affected. Companion Animal Parasite Council has a lot of great data on the different tick-borne diseases. And when you look at endemic areas like upper northeast United States, the data shows us like one in three pets is affected with Lyme disease. Most people we know know someone with Lyme disease, And they all say the same thing. The quality of life is minimal. It is terrible. And we have no reason to think our pets don't feel the same way.
0: Well, that's the thing. So, uh, classically, a dog with Lyme disease may limp. uh, And the owner, especially if it's an older dog, may say, okay, that dog. And the veterinarian may go along with it. That dog is arthritic. You know, that's the reason for that. But dogs can't tell us, I'm feeling terrible today. We don't take a dog's temperature. So you don't know that your dog is running a fever or not. And those are signs in in humans of Lyme disease. Why wouldn't it be in dogs? Experts tell me that and you'll tell me you're an expert, but that's probably true. And Lyme disease is probably way underdiagnosed in dogs.
2: Oh a hundred percent I agree. You know when I lecture about Lyme disease I always talk about it in the sense that like If you call me and tell me your dog just started limping, well, so for, interestingly, uh, most veterinary professionals can tell you, clients will come into the clinic and say, my dog is limping, but they're not in pain. So I'm not sure what it's about that people don't equate limping and pain, because frankly, when I limp... I'm in pain. I mean, sometimes I wear my velour suit. I'm looking good. I got a little hot
1: to
0: my always step. always <laughs> looking good. But I'm
2: thinking, if I'm limping, I'm in pain. <laughs> so why, why would our pets not be in pain when they limp? But if you call me at the clinic and you say, my dog just started limping today, I'm probably going to tell you to cage-dress that dog till tomorrow. When we talk about things like Lyme disease, it's shifting leg lameness, and it isn't long. So we might see improvement that next day, and I'm never going to see that dog in there. So this is one reason it's incredibly important to do annual blood work and testing. Even when you're on preventative, even birth control is only 99% effective. We want to make sure those preventatives are working and they're doing what they need to do. But also because there are so many other tick-borne diseases that will not necessarily result in limping. So we're looking at things like anorexia, lethargy, meaning that they're tired. Maybe they don't want to eat as much. Problem is that's a sign of a lot of other things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So you mentioned other tick diseases, and I mentioned that cocktail earlier. So imagine if a dog has two or three pathogens, uh, Lyme disease, anaplasmosis, and Ehrlichia, and they can all go together uh, depending on the tick that's given them, or maybe more than one tick. That's right. Which is not uncommon either. That poor dog.
2: Yeah, oh, absolutely. And they can't tell you, and again, it's such vague symptoms. They just feel junky, what we often call ADR, right? They ain't doing, doing right. right. Yeah. Um, but Those dogs, here's the thing. In general, I feel like in veterinary medicine, we're here to prevent suffering. In, in all kinds of ways. We get hyped up about obesity and nasty mouths, right? Or even just long toenails and how painful that is for a dog to walk on. And we get really righteous and luxury, <laughs> right, in these spaces. But we don't think about these preventable parasitic diseases as actual suffering and disease the way that they really are. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some of the most preventable things we can do affordably every month. To make sure our pets have the best quality of life and longevity, it's kind of a no-brainer, but people don't tend to get as passionate about it, I think, as they do some of the other conditions we deal with in the clinic.
0: So you go to a big-box store and you see a product, and maybe that product is on sale, and that's why you choose the product. Or maybe, oh, it's just at my level, because the product's way up there, I can't reach, especially if you're my height. So I'm going to choose that one. Or the product has a Springer Spaniel on it. And I've always had Springer Spaniels, so that's the one I'm going to get. Or the product says all natural, and that's appealing. So to me, none of these examples I gave are the right way to go about choosing a product.
2: Products are all not created equal. Uh, Yeah, you definitely want to pick off the breed on the front. The, The biggest thing I think that I have frustrations with in the space right now is... There are a lot of products out there that don't necessarily protect against every type of tick, or for the full duration of protection or that they the claim. Right
0: ticks for where you the live. area. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So
2: there, there are specific, and I think that's the most important thing about talking with your veterinarian about the best products. And you know, your veterinarian is there to guide you in terms of what works best for you. And there are so many choices um lean into their expertise and understanding so you why spend your money on something that's not going to work make sure you're getting the thing that's most specific and effective for your pet
0: and the good news is it can work yeah. and the good news is that there are choices yes. so there're spot on products there are chewable products there's some collars that work some yep. that don't incidentally yep. so talk as again i just want to, i'm repeating what you said but talking to a veterinary professional makes all the difference in the world.
2: It makes the biggest difference in the world. And the biggest thing I want you to remember about ticks is they are not fleas. Ticks get onto your pet, they bite them, they take a blood meal, they fall off and they move on fleas are going to be there you're more likely to see fleas ticks find a tiny little corner or a nook in your pet and they will take that blood meal and go away you'll never see them again so keep in mind just because you don't see them doesn't mean they're not there
0: all right you have provided the best teas ever in the history of radio we next talk about fleas Yay. and also want to talk about heartworm disease we'll do that when we come back with Beth- becky mosser on wgn as promised, back with Becky Mosser on WGN Radio, we would never break a promise. And I know you've just been waiting to hear about fleas. They sound gross. They are gross. Yeah, but what why why? What's the big
2: deal? Please, you know, I kind of feel bad because it's not their fault they're so terrible, but (laughs) please, they make life miserable for pets and for people. As a veterinary professional, it's really funny when a client comes into me and they finally have been fed up, it is because they can no longer sleep. They can no longer stand that their pet is scratching all night and itching. And I'm thinking to myself, Well, that dog probably feels 100 times worse about it than you do. (laughs) Um, Just even think about having a bad bout of mosquito bites or hives and how itchy and intolerable that is, let alone having bugs crawling over you all the time. So fleas at 40 eggs a day are a big problem.
0: All right, so let's do some math here. Do it. Uh, Dog walks home, has a flea or two. The two fleas do what males and females do. Two weeks go by, just two weeks. How many fleas might you have in your house, approximately?
2: So if we're looking at, say, an average of 40 a day, and you're talking about 14 days, that's a lot of fleas. I am uh, a veterinary way, technician, not a mathematician. But,
0: but those fleas are beginning to reproduce now. That's exactly right. Uh,
2: yeah, so. yeah, so as they go through that life cycle, it really can, they can go through that full life cycle in a in very short amount of time and be ready to be adults and take place of the adults that made them very quickly. Mm-hmm. So, and the other problem about that is everywhere the dog goes, those eggs are falling off into the environment. So we're not just talking about on your pet or on your dog. These are hatching out all over your house and they're looking for a blood meal. Most of the time it's going to be your pet, but oftentimes it's us.
0: Or it could be another pet as well. So yeah. for example, you, I, I, my example, I, a dog, right? Comes home and has these fleas, right. But you may have a cat in the house too. Cats. And the cat is if it's an indoor only cat, is not likely, unfortunately, to be protected. So now you've got cats and people being bitten by fleas. And if the dog you do provide protection for, the fleas go for who isn't protected.
2: That's exactly right. Because they're they're going to be able to regenerate their lifespan on that and continue their life by being on a pet that's not going to cause them to be unable to reproduce because that's how most preventatives work
0: fleas also spread disease
2: they spread disease they also um cause tapeworms and i think when we think about that unprotected cat in the house that's the first thing that i tend to find cats are heavy groomers so if they get a flea on them they're very quick to ingest that flea that can result in tapeworms for any pet So we get not only the issue of the parasite itself, but an entirely different parasite introduced into the pet because of it.
0: And cat scratch fever, if we're talking cats. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And Bartonella is something that we have found almost... I I, I read a study. It was not in the United States. It was overseas. But it's something like almost 80% of veterinary professionals tested that they have been exposed to Bartonella in their lifespan. If you look at... The signs of barnellosis in people—it's like you know headaches and fatigue and pretty much everything every veterinary professional <laughs> experiences on a regular basis. Yeah. So I wonder sometimes, but um, that's the other problem. A lot of times we can be exposed to these diseases and not even know.
0: Well, not only veterinarians, but obviously the people that live with those animals. Anybody—that's yeah. right. Fleas can be prevented. One hundred percent. Now, now there are people that live in certain parts of the country, like where you live, actually in South Carolina, that say, ah. Uh, I'm going to have fleas no matter what I do. Or in Florida or in Georgia, et cetera. Uh, not so much in Chicago where we are, where the reverse thinking is true. Oh, I'm never going to have fleas. The problem with fleas
2: is, yes, yeah, so like, I feel like in the southeastern United States where I am, we tend to be more religious about it because we have seen the infestation and we know how hard it is to get rid of. We know it takes months and months of breaking up that life cycle. And the infections are because we physically can see the fleas on them and they reproduce so quickly so yeah in other parts of the country where maybe we don't see them or you have colder winters where maybe they aren't around quite as much or we don't see them infest quite as much we don't pay as much attention but i will tell you it's every bit as difficult to get in front of once it happens and that's the real awful part is it takes
0: months yeah uh, but the good news talk to your veterinarian protection works
2: Absolutely and there's so many different ways Again um, similar to ticks We have oral products, we have topical products There are some collar type products There's so many different ways And we can also help you treat the area I think that's the other really important thing Folks uh, often don't understand that the infestations Are coming from the environment Around their home, the dog park that they go to Maybe where they go for a walk with their dog And so while the product is working If the flea gets on their pet The flea has to actually get on the pet For the product to work And so the the veterinarians can really help you identify areas where your pet could be being re-exposed and these infestations are happening.
0: All right. We only have a couple minutes here, but we can't do this without talking about heartworm. Yeah. Mosquitoes bring us heartworm or, better put, dogs heartworm. Preventable?
2: 100 percent a lot of so we're even seeing now keep your eye out and talk with your veterinarian there are more and more three-in-one products coming out there so you can head to your veterinarian you can get a quality product that will protect your pet against fleas internal parasites and heartworms all in one and, and keep your pet's quality of life and your health the best for as long as you can
0: and heartworm uh if it happens can lead to death.
2: Can it absolutely, death. it can lead to death. And if it doesn't lead to death, either way, it leads to permanent damage. The treatment to get rid of the heartworms is it's so intense and so toxic for the pets. It's just an awful thing to see them go through. And it's expensive. Incredibly expensive, way more expensive than preventing. But at the same time, the damage that's been done to the heart during that infection in that infested period, it's never going to go away. And so Dr. Jones has coined the term, um, you know, any dog that has had heartworms has heart disease.
0: mm Yeah, that's actually a good way to put it. And that's new information, Yeah, uh, relatively new that you're bringing. Heartworm disease occurs in cats as well, doesn't it?
2: It can. It's not as common. They're not the preliminary host, but they are absolutely susceptible to heartworms. And we do have heartworm prevention for cats. The biggest problem with cats is if they do get heartworms, we can't treat it. It is only surgical removal of worms from inside of the heart. You want to talk about expensive and awful to put your pet through. You just
0: can't do it in and cats. And, and one sign of the disease in cats is actually sudden death.
2: Sudden death. And that's generally what they may get a little bit of a cough. We frequently think, well, asthma, it's an older cat. We totally miss the signs of heartworm disease, and then it's acute
0: death. Yeah. Uh, you can learn more about all of this from the Companion Animal Parasite Council. Becky Mosser, always, always great to talk to you. Always great to be here. Oh, by the way, at the very beginning, I said she would do a great job of giving us new information? You've done that. Oh, As, I know. As always. <laughs> thank you, Becky. Thank you. You know, I provide a public service here to report all the animal news that's possible for you to hear. In Anchorage, Alaska, police department is proving they will do whatever it takes to bring home the bacon. It turns out that Elvis had left the building. Officers responded to a call from concerned residents who spotted a wandering pig who, quote, looked cold. Well, it is Anchorage, Alaska, so that kind of makes sense. Eventually, a police cruiser picked up the sauntering swine. The pig's name turned out to be Elvis Pigsley, who clearly had a suspicious mind. And now, uh, uh, um, from the WGN News Desk, breaking news. Petunia is a dog who the Guinness World Book of Records say they're trying to, quote, figure out. Her puppies were born last week, Only it's peculiar because each of those puppies has six legs and two tails and they meow like a cat and have gills so they can swim underwater. It turns out that experts feel the father is a catfish. Oh, one more thing. April falls. You can check me out on my website and that's stevedale.tv. Please feel free to sign up. For all the updates when it comes to animal news like that, you can also sign up for my newsletter as well. That is on my website, stevedale.tv. And here's what happens about twice a month in your email box. You get, free of charge, delivered that very newsletter. Again, the website is stevedale.tv. I can assure you I will talk to you bright and early again next week here on WGN.